It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. The 2020 Dacia sales event is now on at Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. Call in to see how shockingly affordable a new Dacia is in the new year. And you're very welcome along to Late Lunch on this fine sunny Tuesday. Joan Larkin here sitting in for Jerry all this week. Hopefully you can stay with us. We've loads to talk about as usual. And if you do want to contact us with a comment or a query about anything at all, you can text or WhatsApp us on 086-1800-658. Now, there's a lovely young lady sitting opposite me here looking at me. And But I want to ask you guys a question. Have you ever, and this is to the listeners, have you ever heard of the Elephant Collect? Well, if you haven't, you're not in bad company because I didn't know what it was either. That is until I came across my first guest, the young lady sitting opposite me now. Um, she joined the movement for better maternity services in hospitals after she herself survived maternal sepsis on the birth of her baby. Now, Grace Vaughan is this young lady's name. She's a mum, a writer and an all-round blogger woman originally from County Monaghan. Is that right, Grace? That's right, Joan. Not so sure about the young bit, but thank you. <laughs> oh, not at all. Not at all, Grace. You're younger than me, so that makes you young. There you go. You're fine. So originally from Monaghan? Originally from Emmyvale in County Monaghan. I I lived in Dublin for 15 years and then I moved to the Royal County in, it was, when was it, 19 or 2000 and 2010, I think it was, yeah. So, you moved to the Royal yeah. County. You moved to a good one. I did, yeah. You did. What brought you down to, to this part of the world in the oh, beginning? Um, it was a few things. It was actually during, the, it was just after the recession and um, I had uh, left, well, I, my job had gone and um, I decided I'd move and just change um, tack. And I always, I, I always loved the mythology. I'm, I'm into stories anyway. Mm. So, um, it's what we do. So, um, it was the mythology of slain that kind of drew mm. me there. That and then, area. of course, I met my current husband. Your Emmett. current husband. Now, <laughs> Emmett is sitting here with us in studio, but he's not going to speak to us or so I'm told. And I've been told to call you the current husband. So, um, you're, you're, keep him on his toes. Do you want to answer that, Emmett, or are you happy to talk? <laughs> Yeah, that's no problem. Yeah, she's yeah. Uh, you the, agree quite, with that? Quite, you're quite the current happy. husband. Yeah, current husband. That's <laughs> you're, yeah. you're not Mr. Right. You're Mr. Right now. <laughs> okay, that's we'll take your microphone down now. That's you that's finished. Fine, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> right, Grace Let is back. See you and me again. Me. Let's go back to Elephant Collect. Yeah. Tell me what that means. Okay. Um, well, I only came into the Elephant Collective recently um, um, because there was a lot of. 
uh, women who had set it up in 2014. So um, it was through Claire Daly, the MEP. Um, she had heard of my circumstance and she put me in touch with Joe Murphy Lawless, who was heading the Elephant Collective. Um, and I suppose the Elephant Collective, it's, it's a lovely term for um, when, when elephants... When, when elephant calves are born, um, all the other female elephants will um, herd around the mother and the calf and look after them. And mm. the reason they called it the Elephant Collective was in commemoration of the women who have died through our maternity services. And it was their way of, of an analogy of us women coming together and looking after each other when things like that tragically happen. So, of course, this brings us to your own story, a a very serious situation for you, an horrific experience. Grace, can you take us back to that? Um, It was my second birth uh, with Charlie. Um, I was, I suppose, when I think of it now, I always think of Savita Halapanavar because I was four months pregnant when she died Mm. and I came into the sitting room and it was on the TV on the news and I said to Emmett oh god I just have this terrible fear and dread and um, what if it happens and you know and he said this this doesn't happen in the western world it's something that's just very rare Um, and five months later those words would come back to haunt me um, because I developed sepsis during the labour of my second child. Um, And was everything normal in your pregnancy up until that point? um, I suppose pregnancy is a strange thing. Uh, There's different pains. Each first pregnancy was different to the second. Um, The baby was a lot bigger. Um, I was struggling towards the end, but I had pain that just wasn't the normal uh, contraction pain. Um, And after the sweep, uh, things just went downhill very quickly. Um, And We should explain that now to people who don't know. And and people out there who just be prepared. This isn't easy listening. So So it's it's part of the induction. It's it's where they um, strip the membranes and to to bring on labour. And I suppose the the shivering had started then. um, And I was given paracetamol and paracetamol obviously masks Mm. um, infection and stuff. So by the time it came to the labour, I was in a lot of pain. um, And I my pain was put down to labour pain. Uh, well, we don't know either. Labour pains for every woman is different, isn't it? I mean, I, labour pain is expected to be bad. So were you told to expect it to be very bad or was it worse than your first baby? It, it was a different pain. A put different it that way. type so of I pain. Knew, so you knew. I, I, knew was, I knew the difference in it. Yeah. And um, I think, and looking back now, and it's hindsight is a great thing, mm. um, but the, the, the treating doctor... Um, put it down to labour pain mm. um, and I suppose and, and and you know I have to say this because um, we can argue about comments and what happens in the labour wards and, and that but her comment to me was God meant women to be in pain that's why it's called labour and right. I knew when she said that and, and Emmett was there and heard it too that she wasn't going to help me um, and didn't and that I, it was meant to be your suffering was meant to be a, a normal this thing. Is part this of is what's it, meant so to just happen. Shut up and put up with it is really, <laughs> and I, I I can say that now with you know, coolly and with, um, without cracking up or breaking down. But uh, that comment for me still haunts me. Um, it has 
done a lot of damage because it was unnecessary um, and I, I feel very strongly because my own daughter has to go through the maternity system yet and I got home to my daughter um, some women didn't um, and I, I feel very very strongly that um, that women need to be looked after better in the labour wards there's a lot of my mother is an ex-midwife and there's a lot of good midwives out there and mm-hmm. I, I don't want to come across as, as a sweeping that the whole medical um, professional system is um, is a miss but I think you know we need to to maybe when it comes to attitude in the labour ward that we need to look a wee bit closer at that and not just at the incompetencies whether it comes to you know technology and that kind of thing I think our attitude is is very important because of course when the tragedy happened with Sunita Halapanavar things were supposed to change there was a huge outcry after that girl died and there was supposed to be sweeping changes across all sections of maternity hospitals to do with the care of patients and the woman and, and, and whatever you say was supposed to be taken seriously and you said your pain was off the scale and it was different and yet you were told to grin and bear it. Grin and bear it and the, the worst thing about it is and um, I suppose that, that, that caused a lot of problems after I survived this, the sepsis was the flashbacks of knowing that she wasn't going to help me and the medical expert reports came back um, citing cruelty because she performed an episiotomy without an anaesthesia and suturing without anaesthesia and I still to this day don't understand why it's there in black and white in the medical expert reports. Um, we go through a review system, but the review system itself is very behind closed doors and um, we're only allowed to, to talk about certain things. And um, this is something that I I feel strongly that we should be talking very openly about. Now, you did take a case against the, the yeah. HSE and, and they did admit liability. But how long did that take? To go six through. years. Six years. In fairness, um, the first two years were caught up with um, a, a legal wrangling. Um, so it was in 2015 um, that the review was undertaken or said about, but it took three, three and a half years for that to come through. And it was very frustrating. And how did process. it? I can imagine. And how did it feel for you when they did admit liability? Um, I suppose there's a mixture of anger, relief, um, you know, that the process itself is is can be as hurtful as the what happens um, in the original. Like when you when you're when you're hurting mm. in a hospital or damaged through a hospital system or through it, what lack of compassion or care, it's um, by the by the time you're at the end of it, you're exhausted. Uh, a lot of things have happened. The bonding with your baby didn't it didn't happen. Mm. Uh, there was yeah. a lot of counselling. Um, I was I'll, going to say that to you about about the baby. How did you manage? Like, how did you cope with a brand new baby? And you had a little one at home as well. Well, for the first two years, it, my life was all about medical appointments and. Um, intensive counselling um, because I couldn't, I had very, very dark days yeah. uh, regarding my, my son and not being able to bond with him. Um, Emmett was left alone with a newborn child and a one, one and a half year old while I was rushed off to another hospital within hours of being let out of one. Um, and it was Mother's Day and I had no baby and I was in a ward with women who had babies or who were pregnant. And you were let home 
you were let home after the birth of, of Charlie. Is that your little boy's name, Charlie? Mm-hmm. So you were let to go home. And, and how quickly after you arrived home to your own house were you finding yourself in an ambulance on the way back to a different hospital? Within four hours. Right, within four hours. OK. They let me out in a wheelchair. And um, I'll, I'll never forget that morning because um, there, the staff were obviously overstretched. Mm. And one particular midwife um, who obviously didn't take my pain seriously at this stage, I wasn't able to go to the toilet. Um, my husband had to bring me in a wheelchair um, and she said, we, um, we don't provide a baby feeding service here. You're going to have to feed him yourself. And I couldn't even get out of bed. I understand now that she was frustrated. She was overstretched. Mm. There was staff didn't turn up that morning. So that my stitches weren't checked. Um, and oh. so okay and welcome back to late lunch now we're speaking with a lovely lady Grace Vaughan who's telling us about her horrific experience um, having sepsis after the birth of her second baby now before the break Grace we were talking about when you were released from hospital with your newborn baby you went home you had about four hours at home and you were landed back by ambulance into a different hospital at this point I'm going to bring Emmett Grace's husband in he has agreed to have a little chat with us Emmett how did you feel when she came home you, you must have known something wasn't right yeah I suppose we, we knew that she came out in a wheelchair um, you know and since the birth it was very very slow recovery and you know she was in a lot of pain mm. yeah so yeah definitely there was mixed emotions because I knew Grace wasn't wasn't right and felt something felt off that yeah. we were being le- left out but then we were bringing home a new baby too so it was a very mixed mixed feelings. Well, well, you know your wife and you know how she is and how she should be and you had another baby at home. How old was the baby at home at this stage? Oh, Minnie's a year and a half. Year so and she half, was a year and a half yeah. and you were coming home with a very sick wife and another baby. What prompted you to call an ambulance? Well, on the way home in the car, Grace was and, and her pain was getting worse and worse. She was trying to suspend her legs with the the, the belt from her dressing gown off, off the, the clothes hanger in the car. Every bump we went over, she was she was, um, you know, moaning pain. So by the time we got home, she was in a bad way. Um, Grace's mom was waiting for us there. She was babysitting at the time. And she, she started crying because she saw the way Grace was moving and it wasn't right. Yeah. So she got worse and worse in the sitting room. And I had an um, inflatable bed uh, upstairs. So just to make her feel comfortable, I, I brought that down, downstairs so she could lie down because she was exhausted too. Yeah. And I, she lied down when it, when it was when it was flat, and I inflated her when while she was lying on it, just to try and give her some relief. But halfway through that, realised this isn't right. Now we'll have to call an ambulance just yeah. to go back. And you were so. brought back into a different hospital this time. And what was your experience there, Grace, when you got in? Well, I was so <clears throat> I was so ill at that stage, um, and so tired, and um, but I still didn't know what what was wrong, and I was. Like any mother, it's like just I want to go home. I want to be. I want to be with my wee girl because I'd missed her. I'd yeah. already been a week in hospital, so um, by the time I got there, and you know, the morphine had worn off. It took two shots to get me on the trolley, um, and when I was, it, I suppose that night was I. I shut the cur- uh, Emmett shut the curtains around me, and at that stage, I just felt. That it was a bad joke because all of these women surrounding me had their babies and or were pregnant, and there I was with no baby and just very ill. And um, 
then I realised after a couple of days I was put into a room on my own how serious um, it was. And, and who was it that determined that for you? Was there a in the particular doctor who came in who realised and recognised straight away? There was an amazing uh, obstetrician in the second hospital and very no-nonsense, down-to-earth. She said, has anybody checked your stitches? Um, and I said, no. And she, che- she said, do you mind if I check them? And she checked them and she just turned around and she says, you poor devil. There's nothing there. Oh, my goodness. Right. And sepsis had gone from my thighs right up to my um, abdomen. Okay. And Very uh, serious. You were in a very serious state by the time she diagnosed this. Yeah. And um, thankfully she did. Yeah. Um, and I, there was an, an amazing microbiologist there at the time and I was switched from one antibiotic IV to another. And But still, I mean, I thought I wasn't getting home and I was terrified of dying. And my wee girl, I could hear her crying down the corridor every time she'd have to leave. And it just, it was, it was a nightmare. And you eventually went to London, is that right? Yeah. What, 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 why, why was it that you had to go to London for treatment, Grace? Um, well, okay, I suppose in a nutshell, um, the, the obstetrician, consultant obstetrician um, who was treating me in London um, told me that I asked him why could they not do this at home because I'd been from one hospital to another. I'd been to the Rotunda. I was sent away from there. I was sent to Hollis Street. I was sent to St. Michael's and there seemed to be a resistance to treat me. And I was told by the the consultant in London who's Irish, he said they didn't want to clean up after somebody else's mess. Oh, wow, what a damning statement that was. So y- you went you went to London. So um, that must have been such a difficult journey to make as well, being so ill. Well, th- this only happened last year yeah, um, because it took so long to diagnose yeah. because I'd been through the different hospitals and they'd said, go back to such a hospital and go back. We can't do anything with this um, because the sepsis had done so much internal damage. Um, I ended up having to get... Um, an illness thing to repair, a episiotomy repair, um, a pelvic floor lift, um, I had a rectocele. So um, I, the few years, I was kind of walking around just feeling like my whole insides had been turned inside out. Well, effectively, they were destroyed. Yeah. Your whole insides, really, if you think about it, that you had to have reconstruction, really, didn't you? In London, that's what it sounds like. Because you that don't like... when. You, you know, I was so grateful to survive the sepsis yeah. that when when I got out, I was on such a high that I survived. I got home to my children and we're told to be grateful for things and that those other women didn't get home and to be grateful for what you had. But it, it took its toll on our marriage. Um, it took its toll on my mental health. Of course it did. It um, must have been a very difficult time. Emmet, was this, how did you feel through all of this? Was this really difficult for you as well? Yeah, well, it was a long, it's a long, long time, you know, from the birth. And also we're, we're, we're raising two small kids at the same time. So, uh, yeah, we just dealt with it as best we could. Um, but look where you are now today and, and tomorrow. Tomorrow's a big day, Grace. Tell me what you're going to Leinster House tomorrow to speak about all of this, speak about your experience. But tell yeah. me what's what's happening tomorrow. Well, again, um, I was having met Claire Daly and Joe Murphy Lawless. I had met um, another lady um, called uh, Marie O'Connor, who is part of Survivors of, of Symphysiotomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have been doing a lot of work to try and um, 
bring the National Maternity Hospital to be uh, publicly owned um, and to make sure that there's no religious ownership um, on that because I suppose it's important that if after Savita Halapanavar, um, after what I'd been told in my own experience that we can't allow religious beliefs to be brought into the labour wards because... Right. You know, women in this country have suffered enough uh, through the Magdalene laundries. And, you know, I think it's time that, you know, women, they have autonomy over their own body. Um, And I think to get in the way of that or to have religion or have a shadow over that, I think wouldn't be very progressive for this country. So that goes across the board for any any religion of any kind? Of any kind. Has no place. What you're saying is that religion has no place in in maternity care. Not in our healthcare system. Not in a healthcare system. I'm going to have, would you believe our time's up? I'm going to have to wrap it up, but there's a load of comments coming in, but I'm just going to read one. It says that poor girl went through unnecessary hell when she should have been experiencing a magical first, the magical first hours with her newborn and to wish her all the best for the future. So that's from one of our listeners. So can I just say the same from me, the same from everybody here in LMFM, the very, very best of luck for the future. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak. Not at all. Our pleasure. And thanks a million, Grace and Emmett, for coming in and telling your story. Thank you. Good luck. Bye bye. Now you're very welcome back to Late Lunch this afternoon and opposite me I have our resident vet Sinead Kelly in the house and also the lovely Cleo the dog is bouncing around the studio here. You're very welcome Sinead. Thanks very much. We, here. Great. We put this up on Facebook earlier on just to get a load of questions in from our listeners so we'll get to that in time. So anybody who has a question for our resident vet can text or WhatsApp us now on 086 658. So first off Sinead of course we're into December December. Mm-hmm. We're close to Christmas and the usual story. Oh, yeah. Pets for Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness me. People are still buying them, aren't they? Despite I know, yeah, the warnings. It's crazy. It's crazy. I, I mean, what, what do you, what's your advice? We do this every year, Sinead. I know. I mean, the problem is, I mean, Christmas is just not a good time to get a, a, a pet, a puppy or a kitten or even an adult dog because there's lots of uh, change and stress and hassle going on in the house. It's very hard to have a nice, quiet, calm, settled environment that, where you're trying to settle a new animal into it. There's new people coming and going. Often, the new animal might be left on their own in the house for a period of time it's just you know it's really not a good time to get a new animal because it's just there's too much happening there's too much stress and you've got too many other things in your mind exactly um, as well as that often people decide to get, buy a pet for Christmas as a present on a whim or on a after just not really doing much research or, or uh, you know finding out what's required and then they realise then in January that the dog needs to be walked four times a day and you need to bring it to the vet and you need to feed it this quantity of food and you need to look after after it when it's sick and it all just goes into a harsh reality and the reality is looking after a dog in particular is hard work it's it hard work and you need to be committed and you're going to have that dog for hopefully between 13 14 years um you know yeah. so i would really urge people against buying buying pets for christmas and definitely not as a surprise for somebody oh because god, god no. knows if the person isn't geared up for it or doesn't want it or anything like that it's just going to be a disaster and you as know? you say they can i had a, a little dog we, we she had to be put to sleep um she had kidney failure there last year she was nine 19. I know, yeah, they can live 19 years of age. Of and it's just a commitment. It's like another member of your family. It absolutely Who's going to look after the dog or the cat when you go on holidays? Who's going to bring the dog to the vet? Who's going to get up at six in the morning to walk the dog before the work uh, in the pouring rain? And and the problem is, you know, they just require a lot of expense, interaction. I mean, the whole thing about getting a pet is you're going to get love and commitment back, but you've also got to put that time into them. And, and in. quite often I see, especially in Ireland after years of work in the UK, people get a dog and the dog just sits out in the yard, in the 
garden chained up or mm. in a kennel and sure what interactions the dog got in then nothing it's just a life of misery exactly and and because people are getting them for Christmas I've heard from um, a few friends of mine working animal rescue and they're saying there's a new phenomenon in the last few years that people are discarding the old dog oh, to make yeah. way for the pup yeah. I find as a vet this will make people really sad the run up to Christmas December is the busiest month for euthanasia because people bring in their old crumbling dogs and cats whether it's because they've had more time on their hands to notice they're not looking too well in the corner or whether they're clearing the way for something new euthanasias mm. go through the roof the rate becomes much that's much terribly sad that's it's shocking awful. it's, it's shocking it's and just the animal horrible. rescues will tell you they're finding more and more of them just chained up to the gate yeah, outside yeah, when they come in in the outside, morning yeah, old yeah. dogs dumped because they're making way for the new one yeah, yeah. and I mean the rescue centres are full of dogs oh, just begging for homes absolutely. but still Sinead I mean people are still going on the internet and they're still buying dogs from people they of know course. nothing and about I had two people in when I was working last week um, I was working for an animal charity uh, so people are getting discounted veterinary care and yet the people who'd come in had two puppies who were very sick that they had spent almost a thousand euro on each yeah. puppy to buy what was allegedly supposed to be a pedigree dog with papers from some meeting somebody uh, in a lane somewhere in a car out of park the or car. Yeah. They never even got the papers. The dog was not what it was supposed to be. And then they're there telling you, oh, well, I can't pay for the dog to be neutered. I can't pay for its vaccinations. I've just spent a thousand euro on it. Oh well, you didn't have to spend a thousand euro. You could have gone to the dog's trust or another um, welfare uh, society or organisation and, and been able to get a dog in much better he- care, uh, better treated for just a, an adoption fee, which is much, much lower and, and then neutered and defleed and, and, and everything and, and socialised and then you would have actually been doing something good taking a dog off the, the, the waiting list as it were for, for a home you know and uh, I mean how do you counteract this the, adver- the advertisements are out there to say please don't please adopt please don't you know shop, you know, don't shop adopt all of this I mean why are people not getting the message I don't know I think there's a certain category of people who seem to be determined they're looking for a certain breed or type of dog and so they think that the only way they can get that kind of dog is by going to a breeder or done deal or going online now if you're after a certain type of dog you might find that certain type of dog in a rescue organisation because yeah. a lot of these dogs get discarded quite easily yeah. and quite quickly and I would also say if you are besotted or obsessed with just getting a Weimaraner or um, a Husky or, you know, the dogs that become uh, faddish or in in vogue after certain films or TV programmes. Is that really a good idea to get a dog because you like the look of it? Because you like what it looks like? Do you remember after the Beethoven movie, oh, all the St. Bernard yeah, dogs? Yeah, exactly. And, and now look at all the cockapoos that are out there. Yeah, cockapoo. I, I mean, know, that's not even a breed, is it? It's not and a registered breed. And also after Game of Thrones, people They're get husky type dogs who yeah. are actually really difficult dogs to keep as pets. Really, really high maintenance. It just doesn't work. It I, just doesn't I work. saw that, the increase in huskies yeah, being discarded yeah, and handed yeah, over after Game of Thrones. Terrible. Yeah, It's terrible. And the internet, of course, people will go on there and look for a particular breed and pay hundreds for when the, the the other poor devils are languishing in the rescue centres. And often, often the puppies that are there, sometimes there are genuine breeders, definitely. A lot of the time of there are puppy farms. People are set up to masquerade, to look as if they're a loving home. Uh, the whole thing is set up. The dog has come from a very overcrowded, poorly ventilated unsanitary situation they often come with disease they, they're often the, the the person in charge would say they've been vaccinated they haven't been vaccinated and subsequently I and my colleagues see these dogs further down the line really ill and dying in the vets and of course it's not just dogs nowadays is it because people are branching out into having like it's, it seems to me there's an awful lot more unusual pets oh yeah being bought a huge for Christmas range of exotic pets what are termed exotics pets and, and to be honest I, I hate that term and, and people are looking for reptiles and amphibians and animals that shouldn't be kept as pets that they are wild animals that should be in the wild in their natural environment and no matter how hard people try and how hard obsessive enthusiasts try we cannot replicate that environment and those animals end up 
up with huge numbers of, of medical and behavioural problems. What are we talking about here? Snakes and lizards? Yeah, snakes things like and that. lizards and geckos and, and, and things like turtles that. Turtles and yeah, things like yeah, that. You exactly. get the turtles and yeah, they're the yeah, size the of birds, it. different exotic birds, parrots and parakeets and toucans and macaws and there's nothing And people that are we keeping those? Seen. Yeah, people are keeping those. People are keeping and those. I mean, if something happens to one of those, do you know how to treat those? Well, Sinead? this is like, another issue in that certainly when I qualified nearly 30 years ago, we were taught very little about them. I think students these days are taught a little bit more, yeah. but still they are. You would need a whole other five-year course to really learn specifically about them. So the reality is that the knowledge we have about them is very, very is, is not as good as it is with, with dogs and cats. But the main issue is that just we cannot provide them with the correct environment. And so it's, they're stressed, they're emotionally disturbed and, and physically it's very hard to meet their physical needs as well. And you buy something like a little turtle that's the size of a two euro yeah, coin when you buy it. and they can grow into a dinner plate yeah. Yeah, or even bigger. Yeah. And then yeah. how are you going to keep those? Course, Do people don't think that, and, and they're getting dumped as well, yeah. these animals. And people are looking to keep monkeys. Um, oh. It's just, it just, it goes bananas. We we'll blame Michael Jackson bananas. for that I one know, when he had yeah, his little exactly, pet monkey that time, exactly, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. We have a load of questions coming in from our listeners. We'll come to them after the break if that's all right with you, Sinead, because I have to take a break now. We'll be back just after the... And we're back and we're chatting with our resident vet, Sinead Kelly, who's here in the house with the lovely Cleo. It's gone very quiet, Sinead. She's She's lying on the floor, having a wee snooze. So we've got a load of questions in from from listeners um, from on our our Facebook page and on our WhatsApp. So um, one question for you. Here we go. My dog is a devil for begging and at Christmas especially, uh, guests tend to give him bits and bobs from the plate. So is there any... Oh, your face, Sinead. Oh, is there anything we should shouldn't be giving him. Okay, if you want to give your dog tidbits from the plate, I would really stick with something very boring, like a bit of old, plain old chicken, without the skin, without any sauce, something like that. Even if you have to, like in our house, I mean, we commit the cardinal sin of giving Cleo a little bit from our, from the table, but we make sure that it's, even if we've not been eating chicken, it's just something like a bit of chicken. So she thinks she's had something from the plate, but she hasn't had any human food, as it were. The reality is our our food, there's often very rich sauces. Mm. Um, there's things, you know, like onions, garlic, which are toxic to dogs. Um, you know the the meat is often inappropriate like uh, pork uh, bacon can be too fatty can trigger pancreatitis so if you're desperate to feed your dog from the plate give the dog something very basic like a little bit of chicken or a tiny little bit of bread something like that and leave it at that otherwise you will be seeing myself or my colleagues uh, the days after in an emergency out of our set up because your dog has got horrendous vomiting and diarrhea pancreatitis something like that because you're looking at this dog and of course dogs of are course, built out with the big there, brown eyes yeah, and Cleo there is tall enough oh, to put her chin on the table absolutely and she knows it and of course the strict advice we're supposed to give is vets is never give them anything but I mean you know I do but you just got to make sure it's healthy because it's no fun I mean Cleo has her own little up- upset tummies from time to time yeah. and it's no fun having a dog that's having you know hemorrhagic vomiting diarrhea all over the house My fellow's the same he's had pancreatitis yeah, um, yeah, years it's ago rotten. it's a horrible it's horrible and illness some, and often owners say to me but sure I can give my dog anything and he's always fine some dogs seem to be quite lucky but even those lucky dogs they'll reach a point where they can't be lucky anymore and they yeah. get really really sick So we have a question from Jason in Kells who says my dog will now only eat his kibbles if I add milk to them oh, is, <laughs> is that bad for him or is there any other way to get him to eat or or maybe he's just bored of the dry food. Yeah, I mean, milk I would try and stay away from because yeah. um, it can upset their tummy and often they have a bit of diarrhoea or upset tummy, something like that. Um, if you're wanting to do add something, I tend to advise adding a little bit of hot water um, and kind of mixing it around and that kind of brings, the kind of turns the, 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 the flavours from the biscuits into kind of a gravy or maybe add a little bit of chicken and hot water, something like that. Can you add a bit of gravy? Um, I wouldn't add ordinary gravy because again, it's too salty and too many additives. But if you just add hot water and stir the biscuits and leave it to sit for a few minutes, it actually 
the flavours come out in the water. So it turn into a bit like else. porridge, though. Would yeah, it? no, it doesn't really. It just gets a bit softer. It gets okay. a bit softer. If you're wanting to be really strict, because the problem is once you start doing that, uh, Cleo is the case in point. Cleo has her tea with chicken and her breakfast with chicken ad infinitum since she was sick a long time ago. Yeah. Um, so if you don't want to go down that route, you just have to be strict and say these are the biscuits. This is what you're getting. If they haven't eaten them within a couple of hours, you lift them and you put fresh food down again in, in twelve hours time. Ah, but Sinead, the big brown eyes. I looking know at the you. big brown eyes, but it depends. Then, then if you're if you're deciding you're going to give in to them to a degree, then try with hot water plus or minus something like some chicken. If you, and and stick with that. Don't start going into crazy things. A because you'll upset their tummy, you'll make them overweight. Um, but you just you you make a rod for your own back. A healthy dog will not starve itself. Uh, right. Okay. Now I'm probably going to get myself into trouble here because my fella is very fond of cheese. Okay. Right. Again, the, the richest, most yeah. mature white cheddar okay. cut into tiny little cubes. A that's little his bit treat. of cheese is okay. This reminds me of my mother-in-law. God rest her soul. My mother-in-law was obsessed with giving Cleo cheese and every dog she met. And I used to say to her, "She's going to get pancreatitis." And my mother-in-law would say, "Don't be ridiculous. No such thing. I've been giving dogs <laughs> cheese for generations." Um, mm. But yeah, a little bit of cheese. A little bit of cheese is fine. But I wouldn't go more than a couple of little cubes. Right. Because again it can trigger vomiting diarrhea can trigger pancreatitis as well as that's very fattening you know and and, and, uh, you know the issue of healthy weight is just as important in dogs as it is in humans so go easy on the cheese and of course we're coming up to Christmas so all the chocolates in the house and and, and the dogs of course can sometimes reach up snaffle the box off the table and they're gone we get it all the time where I work yeah I mean so milk chocolate um, it it can be dangerous Uh, normally it's more than about 10 gram per kilo is enough to make your dog sick Uh, initially vomiting and diarrhea but more extreme cases higher dose cause problems with the heart problems with the nervous system and it can be fatal dark chocolate is by far the worst so anything with dark chocolate or things like uh, baker's cocoa things like that or cocoa mulch that you put in the garden you know they are such a high concentration of theobromine the active ingredient they, they can kill a dog so yeah you have to be very very careful with and that. the whole thing is that builds up in their system where we can eliminate it from yeah, ours yeah, it? they're just not able to deal with it the they, they, they don't have the, uh, the enzyme to break that down so it makes them very very sick a tiny little bit of chocolate isn't going to cause a problem but again if you're in doubt phone the vest we have a little special calculator we can work out how much chocolate your dog is likely to have ingested and whether or not it's toxic or not and whether you need to and have you that. seen this Sinead you've oh, seen a dog all the time I work in the emergency out of our hospital in Dublin and I would say at least every night we get one or two dogs with have eaten chocolate really yeah and the and the, the, the problem the reality is if you if you notice or if you realise your dog's eating chocolate don't leave it for the whole day because if you figure it out or if you work it out within two to four hours there's actually an injection that the vet can give the dog to make the dog vomit and bring most of the chocolate up and so counteract the, uh, the, the, the needs for any kind of fluids or hospitalisation or anything like that because often people say to me yeah he ate the chocolate about 12 hours ago I, I thought he'd be fine until now I'm a bit worried about him and you want to shake them and go well if you just come in after it happened we could have stopped all that happening and so, even yeah. the smallest amount they no, shouldn't the have sm- now normally there's a, I'm, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head I think it's about 10 to 15 gram per kilo of milk chocolate over that amount is enough to be toxic for a dog uh, with, with dark chocolate it's only 3 to 5 gram per kilo but just you can, you can either have a look online yourself or phone the vet and they'll tell you whether that's a dose that you need to get veterinary treatment for. Okay, another question in. Uh, just heard Sinead, I might be in trouble so, but my dog eats the Weetabix or the Rice Krispies, the leftovers of the kids' breakfast. Okay, you're, again, you, it'll probably just be the milk that might upset the tummy. And again, you might have a dog who's able to tolerate milk, so you might see no problems at all. But I would say if you're feeding your dog milk and your dog has any issue with diarrhoea or intermittent vomiting or, or very smelly, um, you know, farting or burping, that'll all be linked to the milk. So I would try and stay away from 
improvement. Okay, let's move from the old dogs to the cats now. This is uh, from a listener in Navin who said, my cat disappeared just over a week ago, but someone told me cats do that and then they come back. Well, some Um, of them do, some of them don't. I mean, male cats, especially unneutered cats, often go for a wander to look for the ladies. Other cats who've been neutered will often do a bit of a wander on a kind of territory, you know, mission or, or conquest, things like that. But normally most cats will come back within 24 hours. If your cat isn't back, back, back within a week, you've two options. Either the cat has got stuck in someone's house or shed or garage or has been adopted by somebody else mm. or they're sick somewhere or maybe they've been hit by a car and they've, they've, they've been killed. So, okay. uh, you know, I would contact all the local vets, put up signs, notices in the local vets and the local shops um, to try and, and, and get the word out there. Often, again, working where I work, we get people bringing in stray cats or a, apparently stray cats who've been injured and then because somebody else has maybe phoned up the day before and said, oh, we're missing our cat, it looked like this, we're able to, to link them and reunite them. Uh, right. The other thing to think of is getting your cat microchipped and then if the cat gets brought into the vet um, injured or anything like that, then the vet can trace you and, and you can be reunited with your pet. So get the cat microchipped. But also, if your cat's gone for a week, I would start doing a bit of local investigation to try and hopefully get the cat back. Because I've had cats, and um, we have one at the moment, but I've had cats and both of these cats, strangely enough, they were rescued, but both of them came to me, lasted two years and disappeared. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes they just do that and find yeah. new owners. I'm afraid cats are mercenaries. <laughs> they will do that. They can do that. So that's one of these things that can happen. But the more realistic thing is that they've either got trapped somewhere or they're not well. And often when cats are not well, they go off and they hide under the bushes or they go and crawl away somewhere. Or as I say, they've been hit by a car, which is oh, one of the most common things that happens. I don't even want to think about that now because I, I just thought, oh, I they're know, just gone. I know, I know. Well, there's another one for you, another cat one. There's a cat's been coming to my house for months now and I've been feeding her. She's not mine. She'll disappear, come to the house a few times a day. Now I've noticed she's pregnant. Oh my Lord. What can I do if she has kittens around my house and then what will I do with the kittens? Okay, your best bet is to contact some of the... I'm not sure where you are. So for example, in Drada, there's Drada Animal Rescue. In, she's in, in Trim. In Trim, okay. I'm sure there'll be a Cats Protection Society in Trim. Uh, look them up, do a bit of a Google search. Um, most of the local cat protection societies will, will be able to help you doing a, a, a trap um, system so they can trap the cat um, and see if she needs me- medical help or any assistance. Most cats will have their kittens on their own, absolutely fine. If you're wanting to try and get the cats rehomed, then you need to contact the, the, the cat protection agencies and they will be able to look after the cat and the kittens and hopefully get them rehomed and also get the mummy cat neutered so she doesn't go and get pregnant again because they get pregnant again while they're feeding the kittens very, very quickly and you can have a cat producing litters and litters of kittens in one year. So and you need help. So you definitely need help. You do need help. And if there's a load of cats around your house and you are feeding them because you're being nice yeah, and you're feeding they're gonna them. Come. They're going to keep coming. They're going to keep yeah. coming, aren't so, they? Yeah, so contact your local vet first of all. They may have the number for the local Cats Rescue Society or have a look online. There will definitely be, be uh, societies around who can give you a hand. Another question for you. Pet insurance. Should oh, I get it? Yes. What does it cover? Okay. Is it worth getting? Oh, it is absolutely worth getting. I say to everybody who comes in the door with a new pet, you must absolutely get pet insurance. So most pet insurances, they'll cover everything apart from pre-existing conditions. So better to get it done before your animal gets sick. Um, and it'll cover normally uh, up to, for example, I think it's normally about €4,000 per complaint, uh, per condition, per calendar year. So it is absolutely well worth uh, getting. The only things, as I say, they won't cover, it won't cover routine things like getting neutered or dentals, things like that, or vaccinations. Mm. It will cover illness or injury. And as I say, it won't cover things that were congenital or that were present when you got the dog or, or the cat. Often people come to me as a first consultation. The dog's really sick. I ask, are they insured? And the owner says, oh, well, I'll get them insured tomorrow. Well, it's too late because the insurance company isn't going to cover them for that. They'll cover them for other things, but not for that. But so, not for that. Absolutely. Most cases now, if you get a puppy or a kitten now and go to your local vets, most of the insurance companies will offer a free six, six weeks free pet insurance that ties you in. And then at the end of that six weeks, you can choose to stay with that company or you can you can go elsewhere. Now, for example, I have Cleo insured and 
people say, why have you got Cleo insured? You're a vet. And I go, well, I want, if she has to go to UCD or referral centre, I want to know that she can go and get her MRI scan or CT scan, her specialist yeah. surgery. Uh, and for Cleo now at the moment, I pay, it's not that much. It's something like about uh, €180 Euro a year. Okay, now that, yeah. I know when you're paying it, you might think, oh, that's a chunk. But I think that's worth spending on, on getting your, your, your pet insured. And, 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 and definitely it's worthwhile doing. As Cleo gets older, does the premium go up? Yeah, now, as, no, the premium doesn't go up. But what happens is once they hit seven, they have a normally, most of the policies have a 35% exclusion. So they'll normally, they'll charge you normally an excess per condition of about 90 to 100 euro. And if they're over seven, then you will pay 35% of, of the total amount. So, but it's still worthwhile getting. So for example, if you're going into a referral centre, you can quite easily have a bill of several thousand euro per condition. So oh, yes. definitely go for it. Yeah. Oh yes, you yeah. know that. I yes. know that. Yes, yeah, exactly. We've been talking off air about my fellow who, my, my, my dog who has prostate cancer and uh, we're in the thousands. Yeah, we're no, in no, the no. thousands. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, so and I he always won. say yeah. go for the insurance. And definitely. even though I think the insurance didn't cover, wouldn't have covered. No. I don't have insurance for him, but it, it wouldn't have covered. Okay, this, okay. Because he was treated in the UK. In the so. UK, okay. And I'm yeah. probably cutting edge technology if it was at that referral uh, centre. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. The, the best technology. It was thousands and he, he's worth every penny. But if I could go back 10 years when I yeah, got him first, yeah. definitely I would have gone. And him. this is the thing now, because in veterinary, veterinary has moved on so much, mm. even in the 30 years since I've been qualified. We can do everything in veterinary that we can do in human medicine. Yeah. You know, so absolutely. these things cost money, I'm afraid, you know, so it's going to cost. Yeah, we've got one minute left. So I've got one more question and it's a kind of a funny one. Well, it looks funny when they do it. Scooting. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> My a dog sometimes scoots. Um, this woman says, I heard you mention it before. Um, maybe it's something I should get looked at, but the kids just think he's playing. Oh, no. The most common cause of scooting is that they have impacted anal glands. So these are two little oh, sacs that sit on each side of their bum. Um, and normally they have a secretion in them that passes out whenever the dog passes feces. It's like an ID, a scent secretion to say, this is me, this is my patch. Um, especially in small dogs or dogs who don't have very high fibre diets or don't pass very bulky stools, the glands get fuller and fuller and fuller and the dog feels like he's got two balloons up his bum. Oh. And his only way of, of relieving that or attempting to relieve it is to drag his bum on the ground. You must go to the vet and get them emptied and take it from there. It's a simple procedure. It's very is simple. It? And some vets, uh, some owners are quite happy to learn themselves. So you can learn as a technique. The vet can teach you if you want to do that yourself. Yeah. Um, you just need one person to hold the dog, one person to empty the glands. Uh, sometimes they can get infected and form an abscess so it can be really nasty. So definitely go to the vet. Oh, so tell the kids he's not playing, something's up and no, get him down to the No, something's up. Vet. He needs some help. Yeah, he feels uncomfortable. He, oh, he needs some help. I think we covered so many topics there, did, Sinead, yeah, didn't we? we? My did. God, the time flew. <laughs> Thanks a million, Sinead Kelly. Thanks for coming into studio chatting to us about all things to do with your pets. Have a very happy and peaceful Christmas to you and Cleo. Angie, thank you very thank much. You, Sinead. Thank Bye-bye. you, Sinead. Bye-bye. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. The 2020 Dacia sales event is now on at Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. Pre-book your new car for the new year and we'll hold all prices. You're very welcome back to Late Lunch this afternoon. Now, before we go to my next guest, I have to do our great competition that we've running all this week. Um, Dramiskin Tidy Town's Christmas concert is on this Thursday night in the Crown Plaza in Dundalk. It stars Eurovision winner Linda Martin and her special guest is Brendan McGahey. Now, this con- concert starts at half past seven and I have a pair of tickets to give away for the great show. Now, to be in a chance, in with a chance of winning, all you have to do is answer this question. Now, text or WhatsApp your answer to 086 1800 658. 
Eight. Now, Linda Martin won the Eurovision Song Contest with the song Why Me back in 1992. But who wrote that song? Who wrote Why Me for Linda Martin in 1992? You can text or WhatsApp us now to 086 1800 658 and you can find yourself going along to that concert in the Crown Plaza in Dundalk this Thursday night at half past seven. 086 1800 658. Now, my next guest in studio worked as a teacher of history and geography in St. Patrick's Classical School or St. Pat's as it's known in Navan for many, many years and she's a founder member and secretary of Navan and District Historical Society. Ethnic Cantwell, you really do not need any um, introduction at all to our listeners because you have been here before but you're very welcome to Late Lunch. <laughs> my <laughs> first time true, my first time to meet you, Ethna. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself if you've always been interested in, in history and in particular the history of Meath and, and the surrounding areas. Well, I've always always been interested in history, but uh, the local history element really started since I retired from teaching, and uh, I we we founded the Navan Historical Society, Navan and District Historical Society, and through that, because the history of Navan it was pretty well an, an unknown quantity, mm. you know, so um, it just kind of spun from there. But this book now that I've had in my I have in my hand, it's a ton weight. This book now I've had it. I, I got it about a week ago, and the, I spent the last couple of nights leafing through it. Yeah. Now you're talking to a Galway woman. Yeah. So <laughs> even though I've been living in in the Slane area for about eighteen years, I did not know much about the history of Navan, the colourful characters. Yeah. This book is fabulous. Thank I you. really Thank you. really enjoyed yeah. it. And as I said to you, just in a corner of one of the photos, my house is there. Well, there we you go. Say, yeah, <laughs> I didn't realise. for everybody. Yeah, I didn't even realise. <laughs> And a neighbour of mine said, look, that's your house. I didn't even realise it was there. But yeah. it, it's it's a fantastic book, full of characters, full of great old stories to tell. Navin, its people and its past. The Journal of the Navin and District mm. Historical Society. And this is volume five. Mm. You were saying you do this every two years. Every second year, yeah. We wouldn't be up to any more because as I say, well, you wouldn't really have a life, would you? you it, t- it takes two years to produce the book. And that's but, 50 pages less than the previous one, which we thought was too big. So there's lots of lots of material and lots of stories that haven't been told. But this is amazing. It's so interesting and full of great old characters, great old stories to tell. I mean, how do you go about it? When when you start to do this, where do you go about starting to get the stories you and know, the people involved? You're talking about the characters. Now, Winnie on the cover, Winnie Maguna from, from Dunhamore, That We all knew that Winnie existed. She was a kind of a shanaki. She was a woman yeah. who held oral history. She was a great source for that. But believe it or not, most of the stories came in through our, our website and came in through... A colleague of mine, also on a co-editor, Mairead Crinion, she has a, a she's a geneal she does genealogy, and um, through queries from America, believe it or not, they brought us the story. So the story on Winnie has come in from from Navan. It's come in from America from two different sources. There, she's you know she lived a very quiet life. She never moved out of Dunamore, and yet she's she's known <laughs> and remembered throughout the world. She she's is obviously a unique character. And that letter. photograph of her on the front cover Came of the America. book. I yeah. mean, that says 1985. Yeah, you could nobody would have seen that in, in Navan because the man who took it was was you know he he uh, he had it in a drawer in his house in the states and he wrote to her and said you know I'm, I'm thinking about Winnie and I said I just rooted out the photograph and here it is and he sent it to us he said, oh my god that's a fabulous photograph it's a brilliant so photograph it on the cover but you wouldn't think it was 1985 you'd go back a lot longer it looks a, a wooden ladder a handmade ladder up. and the, you know the windows are stuck you know they never open there's no water no running water in the house the house hadn't changed unfortunately that house was knocked down within the last 10-15 years 
Well, that's a terrible tragedy yeah. when things like that happen. There's a gorgeous picture of it, the Maguna Cottage in Dunamore, and it was a famous place for people. For I believe Francis Ledwich spent that's some right. time in there. His brother was a friend of Francis Ledwich's. And he he sat there in the orchard and he sat at the what they call the poet's seat beside the open fire, the big stone fire. You could look up. The big old Ingle Nook fireplaces, was yeah, it? you could see the stars and Lidwich would have commented on that. And she would have told those stories to people who came across her, you know. And, and her door was always open. Her door was always, always open, yeah. Anyone that wanted to sit down, sing a song, she play a fiddle, yeah. or <laughs> she'd be delighted to. Well, and, and a great animal lover as well, see the two yes, dogs with yes. her outside. Very but, simple uh, lifestyle. You can see she's out picking, you know, collecting kindling for the fire and she's do you know, she just she doesn't. She's there's no pretense about her. She's just herself. I'm just looking at all the pictures from her house, and there's Matty Maguna's fiddle, and there's the poet's corner in yeah. the house, and herself with a big wave and a big smile yeah. from the front door. Yeah. So she was a legend around here. So, but other people, like how, you know, there's people living quiet lives out there who really are legends in their own time. And how do you go about finding those? Is it always a relative who'll say, "My uncle has a great old story to tell," or you know, where, where do you find it? Really, it's hard to answer that question. This just literally seemed to come across our line of vision. They just literally, <coughs> excuse me, come to us. Um, for example, I started working on the Troubles and, you know, I talked to Frank Lochran and he, it, it sort of went from there, the stories of his, that his father had told him. And, you know, it just, it just one thing literally literally leads to another. Same with, with World War One. just the stories are... I'm glad I caught a few from people who actually had first-hand accounts. Um, yeah. But they, uh, you know, in the sense that it was their father, not themselves. But um, it's, it's the stories are there. Navin's story has not been told, really. And your own story there on page 85, which I was just reading this morning, actually, about the Troubles, though, that time between 1919 and 1921, yeah. that, that's fascinating. I mean, you wouldn't even think Navin was involved so much back no, then. No, it wasn't. But it was quite the hotbed, yeah, wasn't it? No, I wouldn't say it was a hotbed, but it, there was activity and you, yeah. you get the sense of it. The newspapers have plenty to say for themselves and mm. uh, they, really, a really good source was the... Uh, the newly uh, online Bureau of Military History, which is first-hand accounts of what happened. And I didn't realise then around then that there was a few safe houses in Navan. Yes. They're yes. still there, of course, not as safe houses, yeah. but the houses are still, still standing. There, yeah. There's one on Flower Hill, one on Bruce Hill that we know of, yeah. And I, I never even realised either until I read this today, actually, that the Meath Brigade had six battalions and, and the HQ was Dunboyne, is that right? Yeah, that was Sean Boyle and was the head in charge of the whole, the whole show in Meath. It's just fascinating. Glimpses into Navan and the, and the troubles in Navan. And, and of course, this was, of course, your own story that you wrote here. And I, I was flicking through it this morning and it said here, like, the home of Larry Clark, 13 Bruce Hill, who was a volunteer in the Navancoy, used as a meeting house and also a safe house for those on the run. Mm. And then you get a line like, the hot cocoa when we were leaving. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Always braced yeah. us for a journey. Mrs Clark looked after this end. Yeah. So she'd be there making hot cocoa for these fellas that were on the you run. can't beat the human story. That just uh, brings it together, doesn't it? When you doesn't see it? Story like that, it yeah. really does, and then another that was in safe the military house. Archives, so you wouldn't expect a little story about cocoa in a, no. a you know an account in the military archives, but that's, not that's at all. You that, wouldn't, yeah. and it's it's gas when you read that and you say, "Oh my God, these fellows were on the run, and she was making them cocoa before yeah. they left yeah. the house." <laughs> yeah. And then sixteen Flower Hill, William and Julia Cantwell. Yeah. So, and any relation there? Uh, my husband. They would have been related to my husband and uh, Danny Quinn, who hid there. He married the daughter of the house, as it turned out years later. <laughs> So but love story stories like, begin. Yeah. Love stories <laughs> begin in a, in a safe house yeah, on yeah. Bruce Hill. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to take a break in, in a second, and I'd love to come back then and talk to you a little bit about all the the mills that were in Navan because there's a brilliant aerial photograph in the book. Yeah. Welcome back, and we're chatting here with Ethna Cantwell from the uh, Navan Historical and District Historical Society, and we're talking about this fantastic, beautiful book I have here in my hand, Navan: Its People and Its Past. And of course, this is Volume Five, Ethna. We were 
were talking off air there a little bit about some of the photographs that are in the book and there's an amazing photograph in the centre of the book of all the mills that were in Navan back in the day. I never realised that Navan, so many mills dominated the town and, and the River Boyne and the Blackwater. Yeah. That's an amazing photograph. Can you tell us a bit about those? Well, the Blackwater was suitable for, for, for you know, the, the flow of water enough to turn the, the mill wheels. So there were, I think, at least seven mills in the Blackwater. But the milling would have gone back as, as to the time of the Abbey in Navan. There was a mill associated mm. with the Abbey that's recorded. But those photographs, that photograph, the aerial photograph you're talking about, was taken in the 1960s. And it just shows a landscape that has completely changed and been obliterated because mining was crucial. It was key. It's the central business in Navan, we'll say, in, this, in the 1700s. And, and for the early part of the 19th century as well. That photograph shows something like seven mills yeah. all concentrated yeah. in one area around the yeah. two rivers there. That's right. yeah. It's an amazing photograph, a fantastic photograph to have. I, I never realised that so many mills had dominated this yeah. area. I know yeah. we still have the big one in Slane as well yes. down there, yeah. but I never realised there were so many. And that photograph, how times have changed, huh? Yeah, From when that photograph was taken. Speaking of photographs, and we were talking off air, myself and, and the good Louise in next door, and we were talking about this beautiful photograph in the book here on page 116. I'll remind you of it again. <clears throat> this yeah. lovely wedding photo of uh, Quigley, yeah. Linda and James Quigley on their wedding day, the 22nd of November 1911. A gorgeous couple, very handsome, beautiful. They look mm. gorgeous, but they're so sad looking. We were just wondering why, in your opinion, what do you think of why people never seem to smile in these photographs? <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I think it was a serious business getting a photograph taken then, and I think the photographs took longer to take. So you had to stand or sit in you know, a posed, you mm. know, in a pose until until the shutter went down and the photograph was taken. But uh, I, I think she looks sad, but I don't know about him. He just looks more interested. He's very handsome, He's handsome, man, isn't he? Yeah, very yeah, handsome. Yeah. And we were just and an interesting man too. We were just remarking about how handsome he was yeah. and how he he has no um, hair on his face. Usually, there's yeah. big moustaches <laughs> or beards in those yeah. days. But this man's very clean shaven. He, he could like if you changed his clothes. Well, actually, even looking at his suit, he'd pass for yeah, a, he would. for he's, a current. He's good to go still, yeah. Isn't he? He's good he's to go. Younger, still. I'd say, than he is. <laughs> do you think? Yeah, yeah, I do, yeah beautiful I do. girl. Marriage, yeah, and yeah. a beautiful, beautiful wedding yeah. photograph. But on another photograph on page two four nine, there's a, a very, very famous, a very, very famous Navin man. Sorry, now I have the book in my hand here while I'm sorry. When I'm trying to talk, a, a very famous Navin man, only gone from the earth a couple of short years, Dr. Patrick Randalls. Yes. Now, of course, he had a very eventful life and it's documented very well here in the book. A very brave man. Yes, he broke the mould and he fought when it wasn't popular to fight for, you know, the rights of children not to be beaten and things like mm. that in school. And he was like, Navin didn't really, he wasn't necessarily that popular in Navin at the time, yes. having taken the stance. Yeah. But he, he, he stuck to his guns. He, stu- he, was, he believed in what he, what he did. And, uh, he f- you know, he fought for these rights throughout his life. Lovely, lovely photograph. Yeah. And, of course, he only passed away in 2017. Right, yeah. His family were very happy to see him being acknowledged in the book, I have to say. It's actually yeah. lovely. And he's and described... Lovely, um, at the very end, there's a lovely tribute to him from his granddaughter. Oh, I saw Absolutely that. Absolutely beautiful. A little letter written and by his granddaughter. treasure grand- that is, because, you know, she, she hits it on the head. I just find it here. The last I, line, the last paragraph in particular. It's lovely, isn't it? Granddad, she said. Of course, he's described as courageous, heroic and brave, of course, because, of course, when, when very few were listening, he fought for yeah. the voiceless, didn't he? For the children in the schools who were getting walloped. And, yeah. and 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 also for young ladies who found them young girls who found themselves pregnant as yes, well. Yes, they had 
we'll just get back to the daughter. I just think she says, uh, "I just because I can't see or touch him doesn't mean I will ever stop loving him or he, he'll ever stop loving me. I, and, and that's what a child who's, I think, seven, or that, that, a young child anyway. Her, his uh, granddaughter, yeah, Paddy's granddaughter, so, Leah. There's a lot of truth in that. It's beautiful. Like you can go back and you can say the whole, the whole story written about Paddy Randalls. But yeah. then when you look here and you see granddad, I hate when people say he loved me or I loved him. She says, you know, yeah. I will never stop loving him and he'll never stop Don't loving me. Just she hit the nail on the head. But about the other the young women who got pregnant, yeah, they, the Randalls, both both Paddy and his wife Mary, they would have taken in girls who um, were pregnant and kept them until the baby was born and they weren't forced to adopt or they weren't forced to do anything they didn't want. In fact, the, the story is told of when he went down, himself and his wife went down to Shan Ross uh, uh, down in, um, is it Galway? Or Ross, that uh, near Ross Grey, that yeah. one, yeah. And... Um, rescued the, the, the young woman who didn't really want to be there and her family didn't even realise she was pregnant she was down the country and thought she was they working. thought she was working yeah, down the country so and she was actually so pregnant child and was you know stayed with his mother and that, that was a happy ending to that story yeah. and uh, yeah a happy ending is uh, they, but they they were told when they got there that this young woman was gone off downtown to get her hair done yeah. and of course they had the presence of mind to think this is a bit odd now and they went down to look distraught. and see yeah. and of course she wasn't she was hysterical and, and she was sent off to, to part with her baby that day and they, yeah. they rescued her mm. amazing he was an amazing man was. and of course he will have people who will come out against him and he wouldn't have been well, popular he wasn't but that popular in the town at the time yeah. was all, you know, and the, the news of the world which broke the story about the schools about the whole thing with the beating of the kids and all that uh, some you know very self-righteous people took every edition of every copy of the journal and uh, I think it was from the river that didn't reach the shops in Navan anyway the news of the world so I heard those yeah. two or three weeks that the yeah. story was being run mysteriously disappeared and of course as well his time in the UK where he noticed that kids in the UK were very self-assured and confident yeah. as opposed to the kids here and he was wondering why and sure then he found out why because they were terrified the kids were terrified so I just have to ask you I've only a couple of minutes left now and I just really really wanted to ask you um in all your research and all the times you've been putting these books together, have you ever come across something that really surprised you that you actually didn't know or you said, oh, my God, really, I didn't know anything about that? Or have you ever had a, a question or something that you couldn't find any information on? Like what has surprised you in all your years of doing the research for this? Or? Well, it's not vast years, like it's less than 10 years. <laughs> ah, that's a good long time. But, uh, I, I think... Um the story of World War One, which is not—it's only a fragment in this book, but it's covered in other journals. The the enormity of that story, which was literally, you know, really wasn't hadn't been told, yeah. compared yeah. to say the War of Independence, mm. which people would be don't know much about either. But uh, there was far fewer, at a, at a far less impact on the town than the First World War. That 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 was surprising. Yeah, one hundred and forty people from the town died, and from the town, and the immediate surrounding area died in World War One. And that wasn't done. Where that really you know, wasn't done. There's known. really no, nothing similar in the, in, the, in the War of Independence. And just supposing, I have to wrap up now, but just supposing somebody has a story to tell or has a, interesting facts about Navin, how would they be able to contact you? Our website, www.navinhistory.ie. Just contact us from that and it'll get to us. And then this lovely book, where is it available? Uh, they have it in Eason's, they have it in T- Joe Tierney's, they have it around the town in the, in the shops, uh, Fagan's up in Blackcastle. And, um, you know, it's... It's, pretty, it's, it's generally available that way. Well, it's a fabulous it's a book. In Johnstown. Absolutely yeah. fabulous book. Edna Cantwell, it's been an education and a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks very, very, very much for coming very in welcome. to see us this afternoon. We're going to take it up to news now with Rihanna and Diamonds. The late launch with Blackstone Motors. The 2020 Dacia sales event is now on at Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. New Year low APR finance is now available across the range. 
And you're very, very welcome back to The Late Lunch. Now, it's that time of the year, isn't it, when everyone is burning their Christmas candles and getting the lovely smell in the house, the lovely spiced apple and the cinnamon and all that. Everyone is burning these and they've been very, very, very popular, these um, scented candles. But one local company has hit success with natural candles. A lady called Emma Fallon from Emma's So Naturals in RD joins me now in studio. How are you, Emma? Hi, Joan. Thanks for having me. Now, why candles for a start? Well, everyone loves candles mm. um, and everyone wants a nice smelling home and, you know, uh, ben- there's benefits to candles. Um, they, they affect your mood, it, especially at this time of year in the darker evenings. You want to come home to a nice, cosy, warm house, relax with the dimmed lights and the romantic atmosphere. Um, so I love candles, but I just found that the commercially available candles they didn't appeal to me. The smell of them wasn't attractive to me. Uh, it made me feel sick. It gave me a headache. So I looked into it and I thought there has to be a remedy for this. I want the nice smell. I want the nice mood. Um, but I don't want to feel unwell. And I, I played around with making my own. So I investigated natural ingredients, natural waxes and... So you know all the candles that are out there and I'm a devil for candles as well. I have like two or three different candles burning in the house all the time. But like that, sometimes I'd get a headache from them. So what is it in them that that causes that? Um, It could be chemicals. Yeah, a number of things. So generic candles, they're traditionally made with paraffin wax um, uh, and synthetic fragrances. So the synthetic fragrances, they could be anything. Um, A lot of them are paraffin based and they're made up in factories to smell similar to things like spiced apple or you know the washing line or things like that that people find appealing you yeah. know, in, in, in nature they're nice th- nice smells yeah. so when we try try to synthetically reproduce things we end up using ingredients that you know they can have negative effects being you know unnatural negative effects on your health and on your mood and everything so you decided okay there has to be something else so you decided to do it yourself so how do you how do you even go about starting to say well I'm going to just make my own candles how how did it all come about well when I was younger um, I discovered a way of turning old candles the bits that are left over uh, into a whole new candle so you know all the old bits of ends and things Mm. I used to uh, melt them down in a in an empty bean can in a pot and use a, a wick from a, a dinner candle which would have gone into the mix as well yeah. and turned it into a whole new candle um, and I learned how to do that at a, at a young age from a TV show and ever since then I've done that so um, in my 20s when I had my babies I I always looked at natural uh lotions and potions for them rather than using the generic over-the-counter things that, that might have given them a rash or, or yeah. been sensitive mm-hmm. to. So I decided to create my own again. So I would have used pure essential oils mixed with a, a base cream for my, my children's uh, after bath or in the yeah. bath. Yeah. And I decided then that I would apply this to the candles. So I looked at natural ingredients, natural waxes, those being soy wax and pure essential oils. Um, investigated it, played around, th- uh, studied the effects of different essential oils and mm-hmm. what moods they might have, how they'd work together from a perfumery base with top yeah. little base notes. Uh-huh. And the result is the set of fragrances I have now. These beautiful candles I have in my hand here. I have this gorgeous little candle, Emma's So Naturals Eco Soy Candle fragranced with only pure essential oils and this one is spiced orange and it's in a little tin and let me just see. That's beautiful. Oh, it's it's absolutely gorgeous and it smells 
Yeah, it does smell like you can smell the oranges, but it's not overpowering. It doesn't hit you in the face with this kind of fake orangey smell. And as well as that, you have soap as well. I see you brought in soap as well. And another beautiful candle here, another eco soy candle made in Ireland with just pure essential oil. So, I mean, so you decided you were going to make your own. You decided there had to be a market out there for it then. You must have done your research then to see was there a market out there for it and then decided to do it commercially. How easy was that or Um, not? Uh, well, to begin with, I went to the local craft fairs. So uh, at the time in Drogheda and surrounds, we had a lovely craft fair. Sage and Stone had a lovely craft fair, one mm. of the first ones I did, and a lot of local small craft fairs. And the the reaction from the public was incredible, beyond what, what I expected. You know, I just mm. thought I would set up and be able to... Um, make some money my earnings it didn't even matter that's not what I was doing for I enjoyed making them and I wanted to to put them out there so the reaction was incredible and very soon um, a distribution company picked up on me they were also looking for natural candles natural products and they had put the word out and they couldn't find any Irish made natural candles they approached me would I like to do it on a larger scale I just said yes of course Um, it was me in my little kitchen at the time um, and it w- went from there. After that, we were in about 100 pharmacies all over Ireland within a couple of months and salons, pharmacies and spas. So it's not that I made the decision and I I wanted to uh, turn it commercial. Into it went commercial. that way. It just happened. The demand was there for natural ingredients. You know, this is and 10 years ago. Yeah. And I was meeting it right, right time, right place. And all your ingredients, they're all sourced um, natural ingredients. Where do you go about sourcing those? So um, I buy essential oils. The volume I'm using now is a very large volume. Um, When I was started, when at the beginning I could buy small amounts locally in in pharmacies and that, but now I have to go to essential oil distributors. Um, There is there is a a large one in Ireland I go to for most of my stuff. Um, There's a a local organic essential oil supplier as well. I get some things off. um, He's in Drogheda and um, another guy in Wicklow. Um, My wax, obviously, uh, we're we're not growing soy wax here, so that has to come from abroad. Mm -hmm. But a lot of uh, elements that go into my uh, packages, labels. The packaging is beautiful. It's all from Ireland. It's all local, as local as possible. As packaging local, is I, I absolutely guess. beautiful. Thank Flowers and, and fruits on the box. Absolutely gorgeous. Where do you get your ideas from for fragrance, for the smells? What's the next? You, you know, where do you say, oh, that would be lovely now. I'd love that. You um, know, you must have your own favourite scents and stuff. But what? how do you know what people are going to like? Well, uh, a lot of time now, uh, the public asks. So they say, oh, do you do fresh cotton, you know, or yeah. rose or vanilla or things like that. Yeah. And the problem with, with, with essential oils are like that rose, vanilla, they're very expensive. They're rare oils. It takes millions of pounds of uh, rose leaves to produce a small amount of rose oil. Mm. So it's just not practical at this time to produce a candle at my price range with such luscious, you know, right. precious oils. And rose is my favourite. Yeah, and it mine is too. The one candle that I wish I could produce I, on a large scale because it's our most asked for, and that and vanilla. And for those two reasons, it, that it's too expensive. So, if I did launch it, it would result in a very high end, quite expensive candle. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I won't do it. The demand is definitely there. Yeah. But I think, you know, if you asked me, can I make you a rose candle? And I thought, you, yes, no problem. But a 200 mil candle is going to cost you a couple of hundred euro. Yeah. You'd soon say, no, OK, yeah. I'll take the Neroli, please. Yeah, I know. I didn't realise the ingredients could be that expensive. Things like rose oil or vanilla 
They're really, really expensive. So then how do you go about deciding what your next fragrance is going to be? Is it all on demand? Like you've just said, okay, people are looking for rose vanilla. It's not possible at the moment for you to do that commercially. It's not commercially viable for you. So what do you decide? How do you decide? Um, So this year I released a basil, lime and mandarin candle. Mm -hmm. And again, it was due to... uh, demand from customers and before I can release it I'm, I started working on that three or four years ago so there's a lot of experimentation of volumes and you know the the competitive the, com, the com, competing candles on the market with that fragrance they're using synthetics they're using you know cheaper ingredients if I want to produce it using pure essential oils I have to get the balance right yeah a price point that's going to uh be affordable that people are willing to pay so it does take a couple of years development but I released it last year and it was you know due to demand and because I it's a fragrance that I like you know as well. I've seen that around a lot basil lime mandarin I've seen that you wouldn't think even I remember looking at it yeah the smell of it's gorgeous but basil really yeah. so is it comes from the basil plant but from basil leaves yeah from I the hate herb. the smell of a basil plant <laughs> and yet in a candle mixed with with lime and mandarin it's beautiful yeah but where do you get your ideas from? Surely you're thinking all the time, are you? All all the time. And, I, and I've just done a natural perfumery course as well. So ah, okay. um, there's a lot of information out there. That essential oils and fragrances, they're either top, middle or base notes. And they're dynamic changes when you blend them. So there, there's a lot of knowledge goes into it to, uh, to get the balance right. So I've, I've studied now natural perfumery. So that will guide my future decisions, you know, mm-hmm. uh, of, of what comes next and my next one I think um, I I release three fragrances for Christmas every year for the past few years and next year I'm going to reduce or produce one new one Okay so what's your Christmas ones this year then? This year we do Spiced Orange which is that one you have there, it's Frankincense and Ginger Um, I want to create a candle that wasn't traditionally Christmas but still kind of festive so Frankincense is you know, of course uh, uh, extract for Christmas Um. Mint Crisp has spearmint and tea tree oh. and it is it's kind of like chewy mint sweets. You know, you smell yeah. it and people smell it and they love it and they're kind of brought back to their childhood. Yeah. And it's a really sweet kind of smell. But again, not a traditional Christmas, but it has oils in it like tea tree yeah. um, that are that is good for that time of year. So for uh, winter coughs, colds or for yeah. clearing the air, tea tree is good for that. So I have a small amount of tea tree in it. And then... Um, Wonderland is pine and eucalyptus. Oh, gorgeous. So that's your Christmas tree, woodland kind of yeah. scent. Gorgeous. Take so you right back three. to childhood. Yeah. And speaking of childhood, speaking of children, we were talking off air about um, scented candles and how popular they've become and diffusers, even reed diffusers or the one I was telling you about, the one that you plug in, that diffuser. And it, it, some new research has, co- has come out to say that these can be actually quite dangerous and quite toxic for pets in particular. So people who have pets in the house and they're burning these candles that have have synthetic ingredients in them they can be very dangerous but these ones here are safe perfectly safe now of course we were saying there are some things that are toxic to animals especially in particular but we can look those up isn't that right yeah so um like any chemical essential oil is a chemical Mm. so different humans children animals they will react differently to uh different chemicals so poor the little dogs are more sensitive to us than than us for a certain yeah. thing. So there are pure essential oils that are beneficial, that will help. Um, and there are also essential oils that, um, are, you know, shouldn't, should be avoided by children, by, you know, animals. Yeah. And there is a wealth of information available online. Just be careful and do do your research. They yeah. are 
different to humans in, in what they can take. And what it's something you wouldn't really think about, isn't no. it? It's something you don't think about until something happens and then you realise. We only have a minute left, Emma. Would you believe that? So we have to talk about this, um, the Contemporary Craft and Design Fair that's on. So tell me a little about that and where you're going to be. So um, I'm doing the Contemporary Design and Gift Fair in the RDS. It begins tomorrow, Wednesday. Um, it's from 9 to 9. To nine. Um, every day, um, Wednesday till Sunday. And we're in the Guaranteed Irish Village in stand um, IR1. So this is called Gifted and it's on in the RDS in Dublin. Starts tomorrow, yes? Starts and you're going to be there at the stand, what is it, IR1? IR1. IR1. So anybody who wants to go along and you're going along, suppose, and you're going to the Gifted uh, Craft Fair, look out for Emma, look out for these beautiful candles, beautiful soaps, all natural ingredients, gorgeous Christmas presents as well I have to say they'll be absolutely beautiful and well done Emma and thanks a million for coming in to talk to us this afternoon on Late Lunch Now we're nearly at the end would you believe and earlier on I did say a big happy birthday to a lady called Nora Faulkner now she's from St Bridget's Villas in Navan happy birthday to you from all the gang Nora but we're told you're a huge fan of the Late Lunch and we're going to play out now with my favourite Christmas song this is for you Nora this is Bon Jovi and please come home for Christmas till tomorrow take care bye bye LMFM with your local mace going the extra smile this Christmas for a season filled with magic. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.